welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series 10 and episode 6. And we're talking about Jesus and the little children. And there's a famous incident in the Gospels where little children are brought to Jesus, which we're going to discuss today. The text we're going to take is actually Luke's account, Luke 18, verses 15 to 17. But there are parallel accounts in Mark and Matthew to which I am going to refer as we go along. Well, as you will know, if you've been following the story in recent episodes, the tension is building up as Jesus's long expected entry into Jerusalem is awaited and the crowd's anticipation is growing. Conflict with the religious authorities is growing. Some remarkable parables are being delivered by Jesus. Some profound discipleship teaching is being delivered by Jesus and the story is moving forward steadily. The last episode was in Matthew's Gospel. We looked at Matthew's account of an incident in which the Pharisees asked Jesus a question about divorce and it provoked Jesus to discuss marriage, divorce and singleness at some considerable length. And if you were with us in the last episode, you'll remember that story. The text I took was from Matthew 19 verses 1 to 12 and I'll need to refer back to it a little bit during the course of this episode. But it's interesting just to note the starting point there in terms of the situation because Matthew 19 verse 2 describes the general situation as Jesus was traveling around Judea and the surrounding territories such as Perea and in Matthew 19 verse 2 he says cryptically and briefly large crowds followed him and he healed them there. So the popularity of Jesus is still evident but the responses to Jesus are very diverse, very different and I want to just mention those briefly before we get into the particulars of this text. Although large crowds were following Jesus not everyone was supporting his ministry or believing in him or endorsing what he was saying. In fact, we have noticed during the course of our studies the very firm hostility of the religious authorities, the Pharisees being at the forefront of that because they tended to be out there alongside Jesus, critiquing him, questioning him, challenging him. They are hostile and they are the ones who were given the role of being the mouthpiece of the religious establishment, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, in the famous incident that took place, first of all, back in Galilee, that I've referred to on a number of occasions in Matthew 12, verse 24, where they make a pronouncement. It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons, thereby condemning Jesus as a false messiah operating by demonic or satanic power. Ever since that moment, that hostility has been growing and they have been a little bit more alarmed the further south in the country that Jesus travels because that sense that he's going to challenge the religious authorities in Jerusalem is growing given that he spent 
most of his ministry in Galilee in the far north, he was far less of a threat there than he was going to be in Jerusalem. Sometimes the opposition of the religious leaders was so great that it's noted in very graphic terms in the text. For example, in Luke 11, verse 53 and 54, it says the Pharisees and teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. So there's the negative side. And lots of people actually were attracted to the view of the religious leaders or influenced by it or became ambiguous or ambivalent about Jesus because they were getting a conflicting message from their religious leaders. However, on the positive side, there's a very real sense that some people are believing in Jesus because of the miracles that he's doing in this particular period of his ministry. A good example of that is the event that John described in chapter 11, which we saw a few episodes ago, when Jesus went to the little village of Bethany and raised Lazarus from the dead. And John states many believed in him at that point. That was a dramatic miracle that persuaded many people to believe in him. And for some people, such was the excitement of what Jesus was doing that they began to wonder if something incredible was going to happen in Jerusalem when he finally got there. For example, we'll see this shortly when we return to the narrative beyond this particular episode. But Luke records in Luke 19 verse 11, because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So they thought that something remarkable would happen when he got to Jerusalem. That would be a sort of a show of power that would just overturn all his political and religious enemies and bring in God's kingdom in a more tangible sense. So opinions were divided. But Jesus continued and he kept adding new dimensions of teaching. We saw in the last episode how he substantially added to his earlier teaching about marriage in that remarkable passage in Matthew 19 verses 1 to 12 where he speaks about marriage as being part of the creation pattern. He speaks against easy divorce. He speaks in favour of singleness for the sake of the kingdom of God. And he's adding a huge amount to his teaching about discipleship. Well, something similar happens here in a different context, because in this very simple episode, there's some profound truths, and I want to look at those closely now. So let's turn to this very short passage in Luke 18, verses 15 to 17. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. 
So here's a fascinating insight into what was going on on the road, so to speak, as Jesus was traveling around. Here we see behind the scenes the influence of mothers who probably were the prime movers in this attempt to bring young children to Jesus for him to bless them by laying hands on them. Luke uses a Greek word here, which is translated in the NIV as babies, a word for very small children. But in Matthew's parallel account, in Matthew 19, verse 13, he uses a slightly different Greek word, which implies children from that age to an older age, toddlers and possibly beyond. So we don't know exactly the age group, but we can imagine in this scene babes in arms, literally infants. We can imagine toddlers who can only just walk and we can imagine slightly bigger children all being amongst those who are being brought to Jesus. And Mark actually states clearly that Jesus did lay his hands on them, very particularly. Mark 10 and verse 16 tells us, And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Now that's implied in Luke's account, but it's not actually stated so clearly. But the interesting thing here is that this move by parents, particularly mothers probably, to bring the children to Jesus was resisted by the disciples. They weren't happy about this at all. But they are completely overruled by Jesus. Now this raises a number of interesting questions. First one I want to think about is how were children viewed in Jewish society at the time? Well, children were valued, but their sphere was home. They stayed at home and their social life was based around the home and around the village communities where they might play with other children. The key thing is they were not welcomed into public life. Children were not seen in public and official events and in any formal socialising that adults might do. And in the religious life of Judaism, they had very little place indeed. It's true that some of the Jewish rabbis would place their hands on children and bless them like Jesus did, but they were kept out of the public eye in general. And then when they became adults, which would be at around the age of 13 or 14 in those days, then they entered into public life much more substantially and most young adults and late teenagers would be expected to get married quite early as well. So children were valued, but not in public life. And here we have a breach of that culture because they are getting centre stage in a very public situation where Jesus is surrounded by crowds. So we can imagine hundreds of people around and the priority turns to the little children, even infants, being carried to Jesus. And so why is there a disagreement between Jesus and his disciples? Why do they object to what these parents were doing in bringing the children to Jesus? 
Well, here's an interesting initial observation. Many of these disciples probably didn't have children of their own. As I've stated in previous episodes, they were young men in their, presumably, they could be late teens or 20s. We don't know that all of them were even married. And if they were married, we don't know that they had children and their children certainly weren't with them at the time. But they may not have had children of their own, some of them. And they viewed the parents' request as a distraction for Jesus. But they misunderstood the opportunities of that situation. Jesus wanted to affirm the parents, to value the children, to pray for the children, to bless them, and to show his welcoming attitude. And I think that's a key part of what we're learning from this very interesting little passage here. Now, it's interesting that as we study the life of Jesus, we see that he welcomes all and gives them an opportunity to have a place in his kingdom and in his community and his discipleship community. He specifically welcomes a number of groups from the fringes of adult Jewish society and draws them into his kingdom. And we're adding another group here. But let's think of some of the other groups we've come across in the narrative so far. We've come across tax collectors on numerous occasions. Ones who were social outcasts because they, through their job, were working for the occupying power, the Romans or their associates, and because they made a lot of money out of taxation and they obviously had a huge private income and they were generally considered irreligious and corrupt. We've come across them already, haven't we? And it's just a few episodes back that we looked at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector when the tax collector goes up to the temple and he beats his breast and he wouldn't look up to heaven and he calls on God to have mercy on him because he's a sinner. And then he is justified. We know even that one of Jesus's disciples, Matthew, was a tax collector. So Jesus welcomes these who are on the fringe of society. He also welcomes a group called sinners, of whom a central group were prostitutes. We know of several occasions where Jesus particularly welcomed them and offered them the opportunity of finding faith, finding relationship with God and having human relationship with the discipleship community. We remember the woman who anointed Jesus' feet at a Pharisee's house during dinner, as recorded in Luke 7, verses 36 to 50. That caused a real scandal, but Jesus welcomed her. Not only tax collectors and sinners, but also Samaritans. Remember the woman at the well, Samaritan woman who's welcomed into the kingdom at a very early stage by Jesus as she believes in him as the Messiah. And not only Samaritans, but also lepers, those who had to live outside of regular community and village life because they were segregated because of their illness in order to avoid infection. They're welcomed in. Jesus heals lepers. Jesus touches lepers. Jesus responds to them. Remember one of those 10 lepers who was healed as recorded by Luke's gospel and comes back to thank Jesus and Jesus commends him for his faith. He comes, he's coming into the discipleship community. And so here in this passage, we can add in children 
on the fringes of adult society, but they have a place in God's kingdom and they can have a relationship with God. So this is a very important passage. And it helps us to understand that Christianity should not be understood just purely as a faith for adults. God is working in children and he can lead them to himself from a young age. So what can we learn from this passage? I just want to make some reflections. What seems to be a very simple and straightforward passage has some important deep truths for us to learn. Here's another affirmation indirectly of family life. The last episode in the chronological sequence that we're following from Matthew 19 verses 1 to 12, as I mentioned earlier, was about marriage and about the family indirectly, but it was about marriage. And Jesus there very clearly endorsed marriage as a foundational reality that God made possible through the way he created humanity. He created male and female, men and women, to be compatible together in a harmonious, lifelong marriage relationship, which would be the basis for bringing children into the world. So this affirmation has an implication that marriage is the right and safe basis from which to bring children into the world. Now that might seem very self-evident to some of us, but these are biblical truths. And in the modern world, particularly in the modern Western world, these foundational truths are being brought under serious scrutiny and question and alternative versions of relationships are very much being offered. But if we go back to Genesis 1 verse 27 and 28, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Be fruitful and increase in number. The implication here is that the securest context for children to be raised is in family life. And that's why in Matthew 19, when Jesus is talking about divorce, he's arguing against divorce because he wants a secure family environment and secure marriage environment to be the normal experience of people in the Christian discipleship community. So there's an affirmation of children through an affirmation of marriage. And here the logical conclusion is that when children come to Jesus, he welcomes them. He doesn't want to make them second-class citizens. He doesn't want to make them on the fringes of his ministry. The other thing we learn from Scripture is that God works in children and often calls them to himself even in their formative years. It's a great mistake to consider that we can only really help children to understand the Christian faith as they grow up and as they move towards adulthood. 
It's much better to seek to impart that faith to children at all ages. We should not underestimate the power of God to work in the hearts and minds of children, even from a young age. We don't want to manipulate them or control them. We can't do that. They'll make their own decisions. But we can give them the teaching, the truth and the values and the information which the Holy Spirit can use to form faith within them. When we look through the Bible, we see examples of how God worked powerfully in children. The most obvious example in the Old Testament is Samuel, who became a great prophet in Israel, who was dedicated by his mother Hannah to be specially devoted to God because he came miraculously to her when she had had a long period of infertility. And Samuel grew up in the place of worship in ancient Israel before the temple was built, in the shrine of worship and the place of worship with the priest Eli. And in 1 Samuel chapter 3, even as a child, we see God speaking to Samuel and calling to him, waking him up in the night and then beginning to speak prophetic words to him, even though he was only a child. Another example is John the Baptist, Luke 1 verse 15 tells us that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Something miraculous happened in John before he even came into this world and was born. So we should never underestimate what God is doing in children. And this story here really reminds us to take children seriously and to take the work of the Holy Spirit seriously in regard to children. I hope this will be an encouragement to those I'm speaking to who are parents and grandparents who have responsibility for children as teachers or who have responsibility for children in church contexts or in other ways. This is a vital ministry to care for and to nurture children in ways that are appropriate to their age. And we should keep this story vividly in mind as we consider and care for children and pray for their blessing and for them to grow up into those who are disciples of Jesus. The other thing we learn from this passage is what children can teach us as adults. Verse 17, truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So it turns out that the attitudes of little children can help adults grasp the pathway to faith. So let's go back and think about this. We've come across this in an earlier episode, this issue, with Jesus talking about children. But I want to propose to you that there are three obvious things that children demonstrate in their relationships with adults and in how they receive things that are taught to them. Three obvious aspects of this which are helpful for us. 
One is simplicity. Children are much simpler than adults in the way they receive things. Secondly is trust. In normal circumstances, they'll trust trustworthy adults. And thirdly is humility. Children know that they don't know everything. They know that there's a lot to learn. And in general, their attitude is one of humility and openness to learn new things. So three things, simplicity, trust and humility. These are three things that adults can helpfully adopt as attitudes when we approach the living God and when we approach the claims of Christ and when we approach the life of faith. We need to be simple in our hearts, attitude in our approach to God. We need to have active trust, which is faith. And we need to be humble and express a real need for God. So let the attitudes of children as expressed in this story, inform us, help us and shape our understanding of how we are to relate to God. One of the most striking things about the New Testament is how repeatedly our relationship with God is described as the relationship between children and a father, our heavenly father. That's a very striking reality. And it bears out what we're saying here about learning from children in their ordinary human relationships. Let me just give you two examples of this. Very striking examples. John 1 verse 12 said, Yet to all who received him, that's Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor a human decision or a husband's will, but children born of God. So Christians can truly say that we are the children of God, that, that a spiritual rebirth has taken place in us, rather like physical birth, something new has happened inside us, which establishes our relationship with God as a relationship between a father and his children. We are born of God. What a powerful expression. What a surprising way to describe Christian faith in its relational dimension. But that's what it says. And Galatians 4 verses 6 to 7 Describing some of the dynamics of this relationship, Paul says, Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you're his child, God has also made you an heir. So the spirit, the Holy Spirit living within us, enables us meaningfully to call God Father. So it turns out that we can learn from children. We can learn from their attitudes and we can realise that their relationship with us as adults and particularly as parents is very similar to our relationship with our Heavenly Father in a spiritual sense. So therefore, this simple little passage has 
lots of important things to teach us. And it encourages those of us who have any responsibility to nurture and care for children, to do so with all our heart, with faith, to add in our prayers to our practical love and nurture and support. So let this be an encouragement to mothers, to fathers, to grandparents, to teachers, to Sunday school teachers, to those who care for children. This is a vital, vital work and something really worth investing in. And remember as you do it that Jesus received the children. The disciples said, no, 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 we don't want them close by. And Jesus said, no, they're coming to me. I'll receive them. I'll pray for them. I'll bless them. So we thank God for this amazing passage. So simple, quite well known, but with lots of deep truths in it that can help us understand God's kingdom and aspects of the human family that we need to think about. He has a great place in his heart for children. He can work miraculously in the lives of children of all ages. And our job is not to stand in the way, but to enable that to happen to the full. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.